eh, it's got to be a blend. So like, you don't want to have 100% occupancy because that means you're not pushing rents high enough. I think like, I think the magic number on occupancy is what, like 96 or something percent. Um, so that it's like, you're, you're not just giving away the, the farm on rent so that you can be occupied. You're actually like pushing the rents higher. So it's, it's a combination. It's not just one. <laughs> estate hustlers podcast i'm your host josh appleman founder and ceo of appleman properties today we are joined with elijah brown elijah is a usc business grad transitioned from a reit that's real estate investment trust it's a publicly traded company for those tuning in uh, analyst to co-founding goldhawk capital amassing over 300 million dollars in multifamily assets and serving as a u.s army reserve officer elijah we're excited to have you on the show today if you could let the listeners know a little bit more about yourself yeah, thanks so much, Josh. I appreciate it. And uh, hello to everybody listening. Uh, thanks for tuning in. I'm really excited today to jump on with Josh and share a little bit about my story and hopefully inspire some of you to uh, go out there and build a real estate portfolio. Um, it all started for me back while I was still in college. Um, I was able to convince my best friend and my cousin to go in with me on a, on a single family property all the way across the country. And uh, somehow we came up with the, the $40,000 that we needed and uh, got the bank to lend us money. And we put a tenant in that unit. And then that was that was the start of all of it. And fast forward seven years later, we've got uh, you know, a portfolio of 2000 units. So, so that's incredible. Been some really awesome growth. Yeah. That's definitely inspiring the uh, the story and the uh, the run up that you've had. So starting essentially literally from ground zero and then amassing a major portfolio. Can you give give the the journey away? Tell us how um, how you go from from one step to the other because you're uh, you're biting off chunks as you go. And um, as far as knowledge, internal knowledge and learning. Yeah, sure. Um, and so we started with that first unit. And at that point, I had watched a ton of YouTube videos and had decided I'm just going to build a portfolio of, you know, 30, 40 single family properties. And so we started doing that. We, we did one, then we did another one, then we did two more, uh, each time bringing in a few more partners, pretty much just close friends of mine to help uh, finance the deal. I ended up getting a job right out of school at a real estate investment trust called REITs. And uh, I was just an analyst there, but on nights and weekends, I was hunting for my own deals. And I was able to partner up with a bunch of my coworkers at the company. And together we took down a few smaller multifamily buildings. Uh, the jump from single family to multifamily uh, came about because the guy who actually hired me to work at the REIT uh, recommended it. He pulled me aside. He's like, Elijah, if you are actually want to get rich here, you're going to have to, you know, buy hundreds of these single family units and then, you know, hope that it goes well. Uh, whereas you could just buy some multifamily properties. You'll probably spend less time. It'll be less work and you'll be able to force your, your net worth growth much faster. And so, we did that. We jumped in, uh, started off with a sixplex in Florida, and then I got a fiveplex in Tucson, Arizona. And then, uh, you know, from there, we just started buying more and more and uh, decided to focus on Arizona. 
That's awesome. So you knew, and working in in a trust, you had access, I'm sure, to data methodologies and um, uh, certain things that how they analyze. No, not at all. Not at all. Okay. Okay. So this company is uh, focused on healthcare real estate. It was mostly, uh, you know, senior housing and medical office. Uh, Those were the two departments that I supported. And now, what I did learn there was cash flow modeling analysis preparing presentations for investment committees, uh, you know, being professional, speaking professionally, it really had nothing to do with uh, multifamily or, you know, any of the the components to getting a multifamily deal done. So I really had to learn that on my own, doing my own deals. But what I picked up from the corporate world was essentially how to be a professional and yep. how to underwrite cash flows. And I uh, awesome competitive advantage though. Some of the uh, technology that these places have, institutional companies have, is uh, it's incredible. Um, so what you started with investors, started with colleagues. What what made you want to expand out and get more investors, and then eventually, I mean, you're syndicating. You tell us a little bit about that journey and how you overcame challenges. So it, it all started with the friends and family. Uh, I did that for about six years, where I didn't have any kind of like email newsletter or lead generation. I wasn't even doing LinkedIn for the first six years. I was really just like going out, finding deals and then sending an email to maybe five or 10 people that I know who might be interested in the deal. And so I was able to get, uh, you know, all of my deals funded through just that small network of people that I knew. And then at the beginning of this year, actually at the end of 2022 when uh, things started getting a little hairy and investors started sitting on the sidelines and and not wanting to get into deals i realized that if i wanted to grow my portfolio and continue raising capital i had to source it from somewhere else i needed to go to the retail market and to high net worth investors and i figured linkedin was the best place for that so it wasn't really until this year like january of 2023 where i started like actively pursuing people who were not friends, family, or coworkers. Nice. And is that, so is, is that proving to be the, the place to go? Do you feel, or I mean, friends oh, yeah. and families, there's, okay. it's great. So with the friends and family list, uh, you know, I, I had about 75 contacts on that list and I could probably convince anywhere from like 10 to 15 of them to invest in like, in all my deals. So the conversion rate was extremely high on that. And that makes sense because those are the people who trust me and like me the most, like they're in my inner circle. When you branch out into retail and high net worth and essentially strangers, people you don't really have a strong relationship with, the conversion rate goes way down. So instead of converting, you know, 10 to 20% of my network, it goes to converting like one to 5%. And so I, and I knew this. And so the whole game, the whole goal became to generate as many like new investor leads, potential investors as possible, knowing that, you know, in the worst case scenario, only 1% of them would invest in my deals. And so I've just been trying to grow that list and grow my, my networks and make relationships with people so that I could continue to fund these deals. So is this something that you preemptively thought of, of, of course, you got to raise capital in order to, to, expand and scale in real estate is this something you, you seek mentorship on or is it something you just sort of sort of gravitated to and navigated to it was like the next logical step in the progression of finding capital so 
always start with, you know, friends and family because they're the only ones who are going to trust you when you don't have a track record uh, or experience. And so you need to go, you know, fill your deals up with friends and family capital first and actually your own capital if you have it. And then once there's no more of that, you need to find money from elsewhere. And the next logical step is to go to high net worth people on social media or, you know, because word of mouth will only go so far, like your small group of contacts will only introduce you to so many. And so you really need to go out on social media or go to in-person meetup groups and events. In my case, I'm, I was a traveling digital nomad. And so I didn't have really the opportunity to go to, you know, meetup groups. So I went to social media and I made relationships with retail high net worth individuals. Got it. For, um, for those that are that are uh, just coming in and enjoying the show, if if they wanted to get into real estate, they don't have experience, they can build relationships, um, they can they feel like they can to at least join. How how would they structure the deal? They can fi- even find the deal. How would they structure the deal with the investors? Yeah, so there's a lot of different ways to do it. I think like the easiest way, if you can make the deal work with like five partners, then just make it uh, what we call a joint venture or a JV. And with these deals, uh, you're not selling securities because everybody in the JV, all the partners have a material responsibility or they're actively participating in the actual management of the deal. So you give everybody a job to do in the operating agreement, and then you don't have to essentially file documents with the SEC and provide a private placement memorandum and do all this crap to essentially sell securities to people. As soon as one of those people becomes passive, as in they have an expectation of a return and they invest money with you and they're not doing anything, they're just getting their checks, you're selling securities. And it doesn't matter how many people are involved in the deal at that point. If someone is a passive investor, then you have sold securities to them and you have to do all this work to essentially tell the SEC that you are exempt from filing more documents with the SEC. And it's a whole process. And there are a whole bunch of different exemptions that you can qualify for to get these deals done. The one that we use most is called a 506B. It's essentially us telling the SEC that, hey, we're not going to advertise our opportunity, um, but we're still going to be exempt from all your rules, uh, you know, and we're going to file all this stuff because we're a very small offering and we don't have a ton of investors involved and we're going to you know file a form d and check all the boxes and follow all the rules and only work with sophisticated investors that we have a pre-existing substantive relationship with and essentially there's there's a lot of things you got to do to do it legally yeah yeah and on a joint venture you can have weekly meetings and everyone puts in their opinions just updates on where the properties are at just if everyone inputs different sides and then they're, they're actively involved in it and it works out and, um, and mm-hmm. clear that's, um, when, when you're bringing joint venture together, does everyone, um, split a pro rata share of the property or is it, uh, say if, if, um, Elijah brings the deal, uh, operates the deal, has the larger piece of the, of the, um, success of the deal, would it still be split pro rata equally or? I guess it depends. I think you can customize it as much as you want, obviously, with the advice of, you know, an attorney who does this 
for a living. Um, I have done JV deals where it's like obvious that I'm doing the majority of the work and everybody else is actively participating in a lesser way. And so I'm going to take more more of the profits because of that or I'm you know I'm going to get some other type of benefit for that. So there's absolutely um, room for for you as the deal organizer to make additional money. So yeah. And I think that when you're when you're sacrificing time for the performance versus sacrificing money for the performance, there's one that you can never get back, which should equal a greater share of the pie is. And ultimately, if your track record proves out, then, you know, it, everyone kind of knows where the deal should go if um, if everything goes like it should. So there's, I will there's mention, Josh. In the beginning, I didn't take any kind of fees or split or acquisition fees, literally nothing. I was just interested in getting into deals. And so I only had like five or $10,000 to start with. Yeah. And so to get into these deals, you need 50, 100, $150,000 in these tiny little deals. And so I had to bring in partners and I saw my fees that I was earning as just being the, like the opportunity, the privilege to participate. And so I didn't charge fees for like my first four deals. Yeah. And, and that's honorable. And, and that's, that in my opinion is the right way to do it because you are those first people that come in, they're believing in you. They believe that you can do what you say you can do. And, and uh, now you get to prove it to them. And uh, as you build that track record up and prove it out, now your time becomes justified. Um, I know that it's just, it's a balance. Every deal has a balance. And then the fees uh, that you do get essentially offset the cost that it takes to get the deal underwritten and everything else to, to stay as an, a real estate operating company. Because ultimately, as, as you scale, your overhead grows with you and um, the fees help offset hard costs. Um, it's just what about the, the operation side of your all's business are you all actively operating the properties or are you third party this year we made a massive switch in our mindset and our business strategy so for the first six years we were actively syndicating our own deals we were doing all the work of going out finding properties uh, finding investors lenders contractors property managers doing literally everything and it was brutal we were able to take 12 of our deals full cycle we hit 70 percent average irrs and we made a decision that we we essentially never want to do that again because uh, it was it was for us a horrible experience uh, super stressful and we got the job done but it wasn't without a toll on our uh you know physical and mental health and so yeah. we became at that point we became passive investors we became expert passive investors and we at the same time realized that we could write fifty, hundred thousand dollar checks as limited partners for these much larger deals. But at that point, we're we're just another name. We're not we're not getting any kind of leverage or a seat at the table or literally anything for that. We're just getting our 70-30 and then a 50-50 profit split uh, for that, which was really unacceptable to me, having been on the other side as the general partner. So what we decided to do is we started what is called a fund of funds, or you call it a syndicate of syndication or syndication of syndication, where essentially we would invite other limited partners, other passive investors to invest alongside us within our LLC. And so we syndicated our own pool of capital and then used that million dollars to write one limited partner check over to Joe Schmo's deal. And then we went to Joe Schmo and we said, here's a large check, but I want a better deal. I want a 90-10 profit split or an 80-20 or whatever. And that's how we were able to then 
create a better situation for ourselves uh, because we were investing a lot more money at that point. That's um, interesting you brought that up. I was on a webinar over the weekend and um, it was uh, there was a, a platform that was brought up and it's called Tribe Vest. I don't know if you've heard of that. The, I've uh, heard of it, yeah. And, and, and it's an incredible model where essentially you bring in people that you've that you've been successful with and that, that trust you and, and you can vet deals and then everyone just puts their um their, their seat into a, a much larger larger deal I, I love the concept and i think fund of funds is definitely the future versus say a co-gp on certain levels um i think it's you can get into just massive properties that otherwise would be almost very difficult to get in without an For institution our the deals that we're looking at, we'd have to bring 10 million per deal to be able to participate in the GP. Now we're only writing, you know, one, one million, maybe at most $2 million checks for each deal here. And uh, so we're not investing nearly enough to get GP. You know, we're just a limited partner in these deals. Eventually, once our business grows, maybe that's this year, uh, we'll be at that level where we can write $10 million checks and actually have a seat at the table. But that's that's not where we're at now. And actually, I would think that if we get to that point, maybe instead of you know writing $10 million checks, we're just going to write 10 $1 million checks and diversify into different kinds of deals. So that's yeah. uh, that's something to think about as well. Yeah, it's... um. It's, it's, it's great that that's out there and it's, it's it, you don't have the blue sky filings and everything else that you go through for the uh, regulatory um, for the SEC. So it's I mean, they're, well, they're we do. It's all the same. It's exactly the same as a regular syndication. So we have to do all the, the form D, the blue sky filings. We have to provide our investors with private placement memorandums, subscription agreements, operating the whole thing. We have to do it all. Um, it's just, you know, we're buying equity in a company. We're not actually buying the real estate. So it's a little different. And I apologize. I was thinking of Tribest. They handle the. Uh, back, oh, right. The, but the, they're uh, still doing all that. Like, yeah. They're still doing oh, yeah. all of that stuff. You, but in like for in my example, like Tribest or not, I'm still having an attorney do all that work. Oh, yeah. like, I'm not doing it. So it's. Uh, but yeah, Tribest is great. I think we're going to actually use them on a deal coming up uh, really soon. Yeah, no, I, I love the concept. It was uh, it's eye opening that that's out there. It's available, and it, if it expands our horizons, then it's it's what it's there for. Yeah. Um, let's talk about the market. Um, you know, we've got it's it, it's doing what the I think the Fed wants it to do, and now things are finally starting to catch up. What what is your outlook on twenty twenty four with the uh, the capital markets and just in general? I think at least the first six months are going to be very rough. I think we're going to see a, con a continuous decline in property values increase in loan defaults that's that's essentially going to drive uh you know people people to fire sell their assets because they don't want to give them to the bank or the banks forecloses and then nine months later they're at auctioning off properties and so i i think we're going to see a lot more distress coming up which is by far the best opportunity anybody of us any of us have ever seen in the last 15 20 years 15 years probably um and so Right now, we're focused on averaging down our position and essentially buying in over the next six to 12 months to be really well prepared with a, with a solid basis for a 2026 exit. That's yeah. that's what we're looking at right now. I've heard survive until 25 and then survive until yeah. 2027. So I'd say 2026 definitely uh, starts bouncing back. We don't know. Nobody yeah, knows. Yeah. But... Who knows? It's, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's anyone's guess at this point. But 
Um, there's, there's a lot of, um, a lot of these, uh, they just reprice the market for next year. So instead of a, uh, and this was just this morning, I was listening to it. They're, uh, they're saying the fed might, uh, might have to lower rates by a 275 basis points, uh, come middle to the end of next year, because it's finally what they have, they have just dramatically done is it's going to be catching up and it's going to be a, uh, what I don't understand, Josh, is that like. Jerome Powell and his team, they have to understand that like the impact to real estate after a change in interest rates, it could take nine to nine months to a year. And so like, of course, like all the shit's going to hit the fan, like, you know, starting now, like, did they not realize that when they continued to lower rates the last three times? It's like, I think they went a little bit too far. And I think a lot of real estate investors would agree that, that they went a little too far. And we're going to start seeing the real impacts of this over the next six months. Uh, and I think it's, it's going to be, it's going to be dangerous. So, Well, it's, it's almost like a pump and dump because they, they deployed so much capital in the market at one time and it's it's all almost like preemptive because of course you deploy that much capital and now you're burning it this rapidly things are by i mean you kind of they it's like they do know <laughs> it's and it's election year it's going to be turbulent as hell <laughs> yeah no absolutely um it just feels like they're trying to like force a recession um and so i don't yeah. know for, for us as like fund of fund managers with a longer term perspective it's like sure like bring on the blood like we'll we'll keep buying as the prices go down that's great for us um but it really sucks for anyone who has a position that started in 2021 or even last year yeah did you including us uh, we have have a few of those too so that's what i was going to ask did you all get caught with any uh floating rate um no, luckily. Uh, so we, I've got three properties left in my active portfolio that I haven't sold. And so we're going through refinances on those right now. Obviously, it's like, great. We picked the absolute worst time to get a refinance done, but we'll be okay. We'll, we'll sit on those and cash flow them for as long as we need to. Um, but luckily, most of our passive positions are doing all right. I think there's there's one where the DSCR is, is in, in uh, questionable territory, but I'm confident that the sponsor will get us through it without a capital call. So, but I, but I know almost almost every limited partner that I know is experiencing pauses in distributions, and yeah. I'd say half of them are getting capital calls. So it's a really scary environment right now for limited partners who got in over the last two, three years. I don't know if the feature has been there, but um, I've got the the invest next portal. It's what we use, and now there's a yeah, capital call button at the top. I never noticed it there before, and then all this, the screens pop up of how to utilize it. So I don't know if it's a new feature, if it's just been something that I've glazed over, but um, yeah. it's happening. I mean, it's and, and I mean, if if you can weather the storm, keep the asset, and then uh, fare another day, then it, then it works out. Yeah. I think if it's a sinking ship, free plan, and you know it's. That's, that's that's real estate though. There, there's there's true true risks, and that's with anything you do, real estate or stock market, anything. Yeah. There there are risks involved. Um, For any of the sponsors out there, like understand that like capital call is a far better option than ever giving keys back to the bank or fire selling, uh, just because like you don't want to lose your investors money. Like it's, it's more worth it to plan for a longer, longer term exit, uh, especially if you can bring in what's called preferred equity. So a lot of sponsors are doing this because the lenders are 
believe it or not, the lenders have not left the market. They're all they're all still there. Yeah. It's just nobody's qualifying for loans anymore because the uh, the rates went so high. So their DSCR is in the toilet. And what what you can do, however, is what's called a cash in refinance. Essentially, you can refi at a much lower amount of leverage and fill the gap with cash. And so what sponsors are doing now is they're they're inviting preferred equity investors to come in. Preferred equity sits uh, higher up in the capital stack in terms of order of payback. So you have like the regular equity investors at the very bottom and they get paid back last because they're, they're taking the most risks. They get the upside, but they get paid back last. You've got the senior lender all the way at the top. They get paid back absolutely like number one first before anyone else. And then in the middle, you can have preferred equity, which usually entitles investors to a certain percentage rate of return with no upside and they get they get paid back next um, and so it's like a medium risk medium reward situation and so you do that you don't end up really diluting all the common equity because there's no upside for those investors they're just getting their their 12 percent or so rate of return and they're not getting a, a slice of the profit pie at the end of the deal so that's for any of the sponsors listening try to raise some preferred equity to do a cash in refinance yeah, that's that's huge. I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, ultimately, it, you can re-underwrite the deal in today's environment, and if if it still looks good, makes sense. Absolutely, anything anything besides giving it back. Uh, there are there are have been instances where you do a capital call, and then ultimately it still goes uh, opposite direction. So it's it's just doing right by all that's involved, and and knowing knowing when the uh, the limits are too. And that's where changing tides experience comes in into where we're heading into. And that's experience through being a business owner, entrepreneur, uh, knowing how to, to crush those uh, unneeded expenses on a property and ultimately pivot. Uh, what are what are some other um, outline ways that we can we can make this thing profitable, make it work? Uh, what are some, some of the uh, things that you all look for when you're uh, underwriting properties? Yeah, so when we have like a 69 question due diligence checklist um, for because we're we're now expert passive passive investors. We're no longer doing the initial underwriting. The sponsor sends it sends us that when they want us to write a check. So we have our own completely like uh, comprehensive due diligence checklist. You guys can download it at goldhawk.us slash inspection if you want. And essentially what this is, is it goes through all the questions that we ask as passive investors and want to know about, um, you know, before we invest in a deal. And so it really, really starts with uh, trust in the sponsor, because to, from my perspective, the underwriting doesn't mean crap. It's it's literally just like a crystal ball shot in the dark. Like who actually knows how it's going to perform, especially like IRR and equity multiple. It's like, how do you know what the exit cap rate, how much the property is going to sell for at the end is going to be like, you really don't, you're just, you're just guessing. And so like I, those metrics really don't mean much. They, they, it's kind of just like for weeding out deals for us. What's really important is the yield. So the yield on cost that the deal is producing the DSCR. So like, is the property generating enough income to like pay the mortgage every month? Like that's really important because I really care about right now, like in sponsors who are not going to lose my money, like great, make money. Great. Doesn't, who knows how much you're going to make, but just don't lose my money. So that's really what I'm focused on. I think the number one thing that I really, really care about is right now track record. So 
if a sponsor is new and they don't have any full cycle deals, it, I'm, I'm not going to invest. I'm sorry. It's, uh, it, and I know everybody hates to hear that because there could be an incredible opportunity with a really talented, you know, uh, sponsor who just hasn't taken any deals full cycle. And having been there and having been the guy who was actively doing deals, I understand how important the learning process is of doing a full cycle deal. And so if you haven't had a few of those already, then it's like, you know, be beware. It's like, maybe you should just raise money from your friends and family first and not go to, you know, investors. So I really care about track record. I try to look for sponsors who have at least five full cycle deals where they crush their projections. Um, and then, you know, I also, I'll have multiple conversations with the sponsor and try to understand their thought process and how they work and essentially build some trust there. Um, the underwriting has to be conservative, you know, no more projecting 5% annual rent growth and 30% yeah. operating expense ratio. It's like, no, like I want to see like 0% year one on rent growth and then 3% like after that. And I want to see like a 50% OPEX ratio, even though it's crazy in a lot of markets. You, you I totally agree. You won't even get there. Like it's it's just like from an investor perspective, you just want to see how conservative can they make those projections and still come out hitting our target, yeah. you know, uh, returns. And so yeah. those are kind of the things I look for when I'm looking at a deal. At what but point yeah. does the deal break? I mean, oh, yeah. That, that's the biggest as on a, a call last week a podcast with neil bawa i told him i'm doing zero percent rent growth for the next three years i said we're at a, i feel like we're at a plateau might decline and then yeah we might see some growth in uh, three years and if that's not the case great i'm still underwriting to be conservative yeah. and and if i don't uh, if we don't get the deal we don't get the deal it's just those are those are the kind of things that you see out there the five percent rent grows three percent i just i'm not see, i i feel like that we've we've seen the height and we're yeah uh, you know, we might need a reset, but I'm glad you said that. Um, what do you think about uh, debt, like in underwriting, like all these these bridge loans and interest rate caps? What's your perspective on that? Definitely uh, the cap. I mean, we've got um, we've got extensions on a few loans, which we we're positioned to either refinance or or um, have an extension put out. It's kind of like, cash twenty two. Like you had said, it's it's a horrible time to. It's not a horrible time. It's the times, right? So it's it's just there's always going to be a storm on the horizon. If it's not interest rates, then it's something else. Um, granted, the unforeseen is what we don't know. But do we do we get an extension, see where rates go? Do we go ahead and refinance and get this thing into a ten year term? Um, I don't know. The, the properties that we've and, and we self manage too. So we've got we're we're a different scenario. We push as hard sure. as we can, but we're safe. I mean, no matter what what it is, the properties are doing great and. Um, got options there's some people out there that just don't have options what about for like new underwriting new deals uh new i mean as far as interest rate goes like what do you want to see for like debt terms on these new deals yeah you're going to have prepayment penalty if you uh, of course with a lot that you're going out there if you're going for agency debt you know are you what, what is your what's your time horizon what is your disposition timeline look like what, what's your business plan if it's a bridge loan and it needs a lot of capex it needs uh renovation dollars put in are you going to raise that money or are you going to get it from the bank um I, actually i, I want to ask you that do are you sure. would you rather see the sponsor raise the capex or what do you want to see that in the debt it really depends um i want to know that like the dscr in year one is going to be like over like a 1.3 at least sure. yeah for so, sure 
It really just depends. Um, if the deal has positive leverage, uh, which essentially means that they're going in with a higher cap rate than you know the interest rate on the loan, then I'm comfortable with them taking like more leverage, like up to 80% loan to loan yeah. to cost on that. And so it really just depends on the deal. Like, can the cash flow actually support the payments? If it can, to a to, with a large degree of margin, like with a large safety margin, then sure, take on some debt. Um, but if it can't, then I'd say like really go in with less leverage there because it's a riskier deal. And meat on the bone as far as where is where are market rate rents and we're we're comparing market rate rents to what are, what are the FMRs that HUD actually pumps out. That's what we're that's the baseline that we're actually going off of because ultimately the government subsidy programs they're they put in their their analysis and the what they're saying fmr is fair market value that's what we're our performance not the how not the place down the road so we yeah. feel like that's not conservative it's safe it's um if we get more great it's kind of hard to get less because i think that we'll just plug in a program and, and cruise yeah through. it's a good point so like the way we approach like rents and stuff on our active portfolios we have our property manager just look in five mile radius just like what are the actual rents in like a five mile rate like in this actual neighborhood pocket of this city like not national data not like full msa data like literally just in this one neighborhood uh because it's so different neighborhood by neighborhood um that's that's like what we do for obviously for the the deals that we're passive investors in we don't want to be that down in the weeds we want to trust the sponsor to be able to do that. And so we'll ask a lot of questions about their process for doing that in the beginning to get comfortable with it and figure it out. And obviously if they're like vertically integrated and they own the property manager, that's so much better. But, you know, we, we just want to understand their process, not necessarily micromanage it. And so um, it, it's, it's just a completely different approach for us. Like property management is important, especially if you're not in business to be a property manager, you're in, you're, you're in business to make sure the property performs. Uh, there's a massive difference because that other property management, that, that site has its own set of bills you know, versus just yeah. one set of performing bills. There's a, um, a platform that uh, I've been on the phone with the other uh, founders. It's called hellodata.ai. And they do, they, they, they comp the rents. They, uh, they've got an algorithm to where they can uh, go down the streets and comp the, uh, the rent space off pictures. I mean, it's That's incredible cool. what they're doing. It's, um, uh, their, their level of data sets and what they're pulling and aggregating and stuff, it's amazing. Very cool. Um, I think like the best way to, to go about it well within multifamily is like, look at like all the similar buildings in like a, like a 10 mile radius and then like figure out what the average of all the renovated units are there and then like come in lower than that average yeah. so that you can penetrate the market um, and fill your building. So I think like regardless of what the AI or anything says, it's like literally just go shop the comps. Like yeah. it's all there on apartments.com. Would you rather see high occupancy ratings or high rent growth? Um, high, eh. it's gotta be a blend. So like you don't wanna have a hundred percent occupancy because that means you're not pushing rents high enough. I think like, I think the magic number on occupancy is what, like 96 or something percent. Um, so that it's like, you're, you're not, just giving away the, the farm on rent so that you can be occupied you're actually like pushing the rents higher so it's it's a combination it's not just one or the other yeah i think that well there's areas in texas where it's normal for a 15 percent vacancy because their rent premiums are so high and they've True. got so much competition there's so much being built versus yeah. a 
Midwest. It's high occupancy. It's sub. I think nine times out of ten, if you choose the rent over occupancy, you're going to lose more money, uh, or you're going to be worse off. Like, I as like more of like the the risk averse conservative type investor would rather have like a full building than you know uh, losing money to vacancy cost every month. So that's that's just me. That's kind of a, a personal thing, though. I totally agree. So in that building that you're explaining, I think the right move there would be for them to maybe ease off a little bit on the rent increases so that they can get their occupancy over 90 percent. And then, you know, at that point, then they can kind of, uh, you know, start increasing rent. Yep. No, I, and there's a balance, a true balance to everything. It's just there's some areas that where it's it's just a norm. It's like an expectation. I can't understand it, but on a lot of these properties, their break-even occupancy, like on most multifamily value-add deals, it's around seventy-five percent. And like we look for like break-even occupancy lower than seventy percent. Like I want it to be closer to sixty percent or less, even which is almost impossible to find. Uh, but it's uh, so if you have like an operator like purposely keeping occupancy at like eighty-five percent or even eighty percent just so they can push rents, it's like they're getting close there to like a point where let's say something in the economy happens and rents go down it's like they're now they have a less occupied building and rents are going down on renewal so they're kind of screwed they're getting close okay. to that break even yeah and they bought it on a uh, sub four cap with, yeah uh, also like when you got to sell the building and then a lot of agency lenders have these rules about being like 90 percent occupied oh, yeah. for 90 days and so it's like if you want to sell the building you need three months of like full occupancy to yep. be able to really get like let someone take on a new loan on that yep, totally agree what are um give us uh, a one of your biggest learning lessons um in your career so far focusing and this is a a, a page straight out of like alex hormozy 101 yeah uh essentially most people are like so distracted by the new thing and any time it gets difficult or hard or they find themselves in the valley of despair they just quit and you know anytime there's like something new and sexy they chase it and yeah. they're like oh quick money like i can i can make 50 grand real quick if i just go and do this deal really fast um and they don't ever end up becoming like the really in-depth expert in their one little niche uh for so so my approach here is like let's just focus on like the one or two things that we're like really good at build this business and do the really boring repetitive things every single day needed to like grow this business i'm going to put like all of my water in this one cup until it overflows and then start diversifying so and i made that mistake for like the first six seven years of this journey where i was like going all over the country to invest in deals i was investing in different types of assets like single family and multifamily and different sizes and different strategies and it wasn't really until like like 12 months ago where i decided like okay all we're going to do is like phoenix and dallas 100 plus unit multifamily buildings only value add strategies um and you know that that's literally it and that's all we're going to do and we're only going to focus on linkedin inbound marketing to get leads and that's all we're going to do we're not going to get on TikTok. we're not going to get on instagram we're not going to do facebook we're not going to do paid ads we're not going to hire employees we're just going to post three or four days a week on linkedin and then co- interact with those posts and do it consistently every single week until we build traction it's actually working and that that's what works so yeah that's going a mile deep instead of a mile wide for sure yeah. um 
our morning meetings here, the staff, the uh, the question I had them them answer last week was if it, if today is um, November, uh, call it seventeenth, twenty twenty four, where are you at? Where are you at currently, and what have you achieved? So this week is you're going to pick one destination. A ship doesn't leave the harbor without a destination. And now we're going to compound on what, how we're going to get there over the over the uh, the quarter quarter yeah. quarters and then daily and weekly. So it's it, it's such a good approach. Work backwards from that. That's exactly what my partner and I do for our goal setting. We're like, okay, how do we bring it in? Like, how how are we going to bring in an extra five million in capital this year from our LPs? And we worked backwards, and it was like 15 steps to get down to our actual goal, which is just bringing in like 250 new leads per month into our system because based on conversion rates that gets us to our goal and even deeper than that what does that mean okay that means i have to post on linkedin three or like four times a week we need to bring on a virtual assistant to follow up on the comments and stuff like that so like we have all these actionable boring things and it shows up recurring in my asana every single day and i look at it and i go like oh my goodness like i gotta do this for the next five years yeah. and it's like yes yes you do like I, like we have opportunities to sell all kinds of crap and do one-on-one -on -one coaching for $500 an hour, but, but I'm not doing that. I'm, I'm, I'm like playing the long game here, taking like 2% of the money that I raise as an acquisition fee and living off that so that I can get the, you know, the hundred million dollar payout in 10 years from now. That's yeah. the whole point. Yeah, we use Asana over here too. It's uh, it helps structuring exactly where you're going and subtask it out and then checking those boxes and getting unicorns. So it's, it's just, working the deal working the plan every single day taking action right started doing the uh, the miracle morning too so it's 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 incredible what uh, just change and shift in in your routine and what you can achieve in uh in different uh, different morning hours but you gotta do the boring stuff you have to man absolutely very but uh elijah if somebody wants to get a hold of you find out more about um uh, about gold hawk capital how can they reach out yeah linkedin's a good way like send it connection requests, shoot me a message. Uh, that's where I'm most active and I provide all kinds of freebies and advice and free products. Uh, as, as I mentioned, if uh, those of you who are passive investors or even sponsors or fund to fund managers, if you want to know like what we look for when we're analyzing an opportunity, you can go to goldhawk.us slash inspection and download our like 69 question checklist for what we look for in, in a deal. Uh, so that's a really good resource as well. Very cool. Awesome. Elijah, I look forward to following you. Definitely appreciate your time and we will talk soon. Thanks so much, Josh. Appreciate it. Thank you. Bye.